0: This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate
1: eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the
0: founders of Brightly.Eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small.
1: And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightlyego podcast.
0: And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sheets and Giggles, a company with a punny name but a seriously sustainable mission to make better bedding for everyone. Sheets and Giggles bedding
0: consists of sustainably made 400 thread count eucalyptus sheets that are static free, moisture wicking, use no insecticides or pesticides, and are half the cost of their store bought competition. Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at sheetsgiggles.com. If you're into interior design like me, it can be so tempting to get trendy pieces for your home that you're then stuck with later once they go out of style. A more sustainable option is one you might not have thought about before renting your furniture. We got the chance to try out Oliver's furniture rental service, and I'm seriously impressed with the gorgeous terrazzo coffee table that's now sitting in my den. I get to have a trendy piece and not feel guilty about sending it to a new home. Once, I'm done
1: with it. Oliver makes sure your pieces are new when they come to you by using extremely high refurbishment standards and sanitization. And at the end of the road, all Oliver pieces go to their donation partner, Habitat for Humanity. Check out
0: oliver.space to browse all of their sustainable and chic options and use code GOODtogether to get 10% off your order. At Good Together, Lisa and I seek to uplift and inspire everyone to create a better world, and we believe that sustainability equals fairness for all. Our community of listeners, advocates, and ambassadors has asked us to do more to shine a light on topics like intersectional environmentalism, and we're so glad to be able to support this important work by sharing our platform to amplify. As Lee Thomas, Green Girl Lee on Instagram, describes the term further, intersectional environmentalism is an inclusive version of environmentalism that advocates for both the protection of people and the planet. It identifies the ways in which injustices happening to marginalized communities and the earth are all interconnected. It brings injustices done to the most vulnerable communities and the earth to the forefront and does not minimize or silence social inequality. In today's episode of Good Together, we're welcoming Carolyn Finney, the author of Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors. We discuss the lifetime of work Carolyn is dedicated to advancing equality and environmentalism. Plus, we also ask hard questions like why enjoying the great outdoors is not something that's available to everyone in America let's dig in into how we can all work together to make earth-friendly living better for those who have been excluded in the past. All right. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to Good Together. Hi, Laura. Glad to be here. And Lisa. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, so um, like we were just uh, chatting with Carolyn before we hit uh, record, we're so excited to welcome her to Good Together. Um, the topic of intersectional environmentalism and the impact that racism has on access to the great outdoors is something that our community has been Super interested in having us explore more. Um, And so, you know, we heard about Carolyn, we heard about her wonderful book um, and wanted to get her on the podcast. So um, just a really brief intro. So so Carolyn Finney, uh, PhD, is a storyteller, author and cultural geographer. Her first book, Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African-Americans to the Great Outdoors, was released in 2014. Along with public speaking, writing, consulting, and teaching, she served on the U.S. National Parks Advisory Board for eight years. She's currently doing a two-year residency in the Franklin Environmental Center at Middlebury College, and we can't uh, wait to get into it. So welcome. Thank you. Let's get into it. It (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. So. Um, Carolyn, I wonder if you could kind of just give our audience a really brief overview of what your book is about and sort of maybe what inspired you to to get into it, because I know you you it's packed full of a ton of research. So it was quite um, quite a feat and an awesome read. Oh, yeah. and if you. I can
1: if I can have a request, I know that thank you me. have uh, done backpack traveling in Nepal and across yeah. Africa. And I think that was kind of the, was the inspirational moment for you. So we would love to hear about that too, that moment. Oh, yeah,
2: I, I, I'm i happy to, this is what I like to talk about. I'm mm-hmm. going to do my best to try to keep it brief. No, um, that's fine. We're in no, we no um, rush
1: here for sure. <laughs> well, you
2: know, one of the things that when people ask me about, you know, how I got into this And I could say to you that, you know, when I went back to school and got my degree, some of this was research and, but actually this is totally personal and yes, and I'll come to the backpacking in a minute, but actually it was before that, right? So I, you know, I always tell people the story and right at the beginning of the book, I talk a little bit about the story about where I grew up because I think about how we all, you know, in my opinion, all of us are formed by that nature outside of ourselves through our childhood experiences. I mean, our first sort of interaction with that. And so we're not necessarily thinking about it, but when you can reflect upon it and look back and remember what those experiences were um, and how they shaped you, you know, I, for me, that's a really powerful experience of my parents who um, grew up poor uh, and black in the South and came to New York in the 50s, looking for a better job opportunity. The job my parents eventually took, which was caring for an estate belonging to a very wealthy Jewish family, about 30 minutes outside of New York City. My parents were the full-time caretakers for that estate, the gardener. My dad was the chauffeur. My mom was a sometime housekeeper. And it was in a very wealthy white neighborhood um, in Westchester County. And they adopted me. They thought they couldn't have kids and adopted me. And then I always joke around and say, then they relaxed a couple of times and had both my brothers. <laughs> and uh, um, and the, the original owners were only there mostly on weekends and holidays. So it was like we had run of our private park. I mean, this was 12 acres that had a small pond with a rowboat and fish, had a swimming pool, had vegetable gardens, flower gardens, fruit trees, woods, it was a really stunning piece of property. So we were outside all the time. Um, We all knew how to swim by the time we were seven years old because of water on the property. My, you you know, kids, we were being kids. So we, you know, my parents had to make sure if we fell in and they weren't around that we knew how to swim, bicycling, just being outside all the time. So that in part, I understand how that influenced me. But the other piece to that, like in the question of race and difference for myself as an African-American is, I always tell the story that when I was nine, you know, because you had so much wealth in this neighborhood, we were the only family of color in this neighborhood. Um, was there, so there was always policemen patrolling this neighborhood. And I was coming home from school. I went to a public school. I was walking home. I was right around the corner from the house. Uh, when a policeman in his car stopped me and wanted to know where I was going, and I remember saying, you know, I gave him the address. And he just looked at me and said, oh, do you work there? And I remember, I still remember it really, feeling really confused by the question. and (laughs) Because I'm nine, right? So I I just said, no, I live there. And then he let me go. I went home and told my parents what happened. And my dad was really angry. And he called the police station. And he really gave them hell about it. And they didn't stop me or my brothers again. But as an adult, and this is something we're hearing about all the time now, I had to think about the logics of that. Like I was a little girl with my school bag, you know, nine coming, you know, the time of day, all the logics about what he maybe could have said, maybe making sure I knew where I was going. Did I need help? Yeah. Or just saying, hello, I'm your local friendly policeman. <laughs> but what he, ch- for me, he was challenging my right to be there. And by extension, my family's right to be there. And the only thing that I could think about was the color of our skin that made, because all the other things were logical as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. Um, so I want to jump ahead a little bit. And, you know, this was, you know, came about the time that I was back in school and working on my doctorate. So my parents, um, one, one of the original owners had died and his wife, I'm trying not to name them. I I tend to name them all the time, but um, uh she was very sick, and this was in the 90s. So now my parents have been caring for this land for 40 years. Wow. So she knew that she was going to die and what's going to happen to my parents, right? They've been on this land you know, for 40 years at that point. And she talked about trying to keep them on the land, and it was way too complicated. That property was worth over. $3 million in the 90s, and the property taxes alone were $125,000 a year. And My dad had been making like $20,000 a year and way too complicated to think about with, the, with their family, what that would look like. So she had a house built for them, a beautiful house, I, wish, I should say, in Leesburg, Virginia, because at that point, I had long been gone from home. My other brother also, but we, the two of us were always moving around. So my youngest brother had gotten married and settled down there with kids. So that's why they went back to Virginia. And the house was on a half an acre of land. So she finally passed away. My parents stayed on this land till 2003 because a new owner came on and they had to find another family because somebody's got to be caring for that land full time. And eventually they found someone from a family from the Dominican Republic. That's what I understand. And they moved in. So my parents left now they've been caring for the land for 50 years. And what I watched happen in particular for my father was how depressed he got and talking about missing that land. And this was when I was working on my doctorate and thinking about these questions in more intellectual capacity. But it's also reminded me how personal this whole thing is, because I will say the final thing that happened there that got me thinking about that loss for my parents and by extension, that loss for me and my brothers as well, right, we can never go home again, was that they received a copy of a letter from one of their old neighbors. And the letter was from the Westchester Conservation Land Trust, which was talking about how a conservation easement had now been placed on this piece of property. And in the letter, which I have a copy of, it talked about all the environmental values of the property, where it sits in the watershed, the wildlife on the property, all the reasons why that property in perpetuity should be um, protected. And near the end of the letter, it's not a very long letter, I'd say about a page and a half with some, with some images, it thanked the new owner for his conservation-mindedness. Now, this man had been on the land for about three years at that point. There was nothing in the letter acknowledging or thanking my parents who cared mm-hmm. for that land full-time for 50 years. And that's when I just, I just watched how quickly they got erased done over they're not part of that environmental history anymore um and so i started thinking about that in the context of this country particularly black and brown people as it relates to environment broadly defined how many of those people have become invisible they're not part of our history we don't talk about it we don't tell those stories and then we make assumptions you know that sort of leap to black people don't fill in the blanks when it comes to the outdoors and environment that simply aren't true it's simply not true But it says a lot about, oh, what we privilege and prioritize, who gets to decide what the important stories are, how mission statements and environmental organizations get formed. I mean, we can just keep tumbling down the hill in a snowball that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And this is why I always say things like, you know, you know, systemic racism doesn't stop at the park gates. It doesn't stop at the beginning of the woods or on the beach or the mountain just because it's beautiful. So. That's part of personally what drove me there. Now, the backpacking trips, that changed my life, actually. So, I was an actress for about 11 years. So, I had a whole other career. I dropped out of school initially when I was 19. I went to New York, so New York and LA for 11 years. I lived in Brooklyn. This is what I was doing, right? Pursuing this. But towards the end of that, um, and that's why I tell people I start off by saying I'm a storyteller, because for me, it's about combining all of these elements together and having these conversations with people about these issues, right? Um, I decided, what's oh, the short version of this? So I got married in my 20s. Uh, I was young and uh, I was a lot of things then. And <laughs> you know, when things weren't working out. We were both pretty young. So we got this crazy idea. You know, most people decide that when the marriage isn't working, they're going to go to a marriage therapist. What we said was, why don't we backpack, do a backpacking trip around the world? And so at the time, this was the late 80s, you could buy an around-the-world ticket for $2,500, and you could take up to a year to use it. It was on Pan Am, which is no longer around. Wow. Yeah, right? So we saved (laughs) our money. We did it. We bought that ticket. And that, I mean, that moment for me, that first trip really changed my life. I mean, we went to... You know, Kenya and Thailand and India and Israel and Turkey and Egypt and, I you know, Singapore. I just, you know, I think back to that, you know, moment. And for me, it was like landing in places that I'd only read about and suddenly we were there. And I think about also, you know, I, up until that point, I thought I was a pretty cool human being. And I, and when I went on this experience, a lot of things got revealed about myself to myself that I was like, I'm not that cool after all, I got some work to do. (laughs) Um, And part of that was my um, significant self-involvement and, you know, careers like acting and stuff kind of do that to you. You have to be focused on yourself because you are the instrument for the work, but also I hadn't been paying attention to what was happening in the world and my place in it and my relationship to it. Right. It, and by the way, folks, it did not save the marriage. But
0: that's what I was going to ask <laughs> oh, you. Know, right,
2: right? No, eh, next. Right. So it didn't that didn't work out. But it really lit a fire in me when I came back. I had been thinking some time about going back to school. But at this point, you know, I had flunked out and dropped out many years earlier. And I and I love acting. I love the art of the storytelling and doing that kind of work. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I came back. And I spent another year pursuing acting and survival jobs and saving my money because this time I wanted to see if I could take a backpacking trip by myself. Right. I said, because I, I had also noticed on that other trip that I had become really scared all the time. Like I didn't have that fearlessness that I thought I had, or I had buried it somewhere. And I wanted to feel like I could do it by myself. I did not have to have another person with me to do it. So I saved my money and I planned a six-month backpacking trip through East Africa. And uh, I can remember, you know, uh, you know, I had gone to London and getting on a plane and I was crying like because I was so scared. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> this is insane. And of course, it was amazing. So I went for six months to Kenya, Uganda, um, Tanzania, and Madagascar. And wow. I... It was just this, first of all, the great privilege that I had no, I mean, I had no credit cards because I, I never had any credit cards at that point and no debt. I bought my round the world, t- I bought my return ticket. So it was the one thing I had. And I had remember I had American Express traveler's checks, right? Because that's how you used to do it back in the 90s. And I had enough to last. And I knew when they were done, I had my ticket and I would get back on the plane. And I had my backpack and my Lonely Planet guide. That was basically the deal. I I mean, this, and I have a lot of stories I could tell about that. I came back. Um, then I, about six months later, I went back because I, romance always happens, folks, when you, when you're on the road. And I met <laughs> this guy who was w- with Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, and he was in Mozambique. So I, I, I had moved to LA because I was still thinking, I think I still want to do acting. And then I booked a commercial and took the money and friends looked at me and said, well, you're in LA. You just got some money from this commercial. What you should do is buy a car because you can't live in LA without it. And I <laughs> sat there in one hand going, I could buy a car or I could go to Mozambique and Zimbabwe. Well, you can guess what I did. Right? <laughs> so I went to Mozambique and Zimbabwe. Who's going to remember and think about a car? You know. No, so <laughs> I did that. And then at that point, when I came back, I was thinking, okay. It's great that I'm going and doing all this traveling, but what does it mean? What does it mean in terms of work and how I am in the world and how I'm contributing? So I started thinking about things like Peace Corps and other ways that I might volunteer. And a friend of mine said, she said, why don't you just pick a place you've been to and just go live there for a while? Get to know the people, get to know the place. And when I had done that backpacking trip around the world, I had spent two weeks in Nepal and loved Nepal. And I thought, you know, I did some research and thinking about, you know, you kind of go by your intuition and what resonated. And I said, I'm going to go to Nepal. And I ended up staying there for a year and a half. Wow. Living in a village. And that, you know, trekking for me is for me the ultimate thing to do, to trek. And it's not a hike. You know, there's something about the Himalayas or the Himalayas, however you say it, that for me is stunning. And I lived in a a village there in Elam. It was during that time I decided to return to school to finish my undergraduate degree. And then eventually I got a master's and then a PhD. I just kept going. Um, And so that also impacted the way I think of the question, not just of environment, but of place. And who are we in terms of our identities and how we show off? I cannot tell you what the funny part is. So now I have dreadlocks. But when I was starting all that traveling, I, I had this kind of curly, pseudo natural look. Mm -hmm. And how many times people had no idea. I was dressed like any other Western backpacker. I mean, I really was right. I, I, for me, I had all the accoutrement again. I had all the stuff. Americans were the funniest to me because other Americans would see me abroad and never thought I was American. (laughs) Now you are listening to my voice for me. I'm incredibly American. As a matter of fact, I'm incredibly New York, you know, even though I hadn't lived there in a lot of years. But they thought I was from Israel, Brazil. I was Maori, and you know, part of me loved all that. I loved the (laughs) fact that I could be all those things. But I also thought it was be so interesting, you know, that because to see another African American backpacking like me, I almost never saw anybody. I think. Yeah, and why
0: why would they assume that, right? Like, why would that be their very first uh, reaction? It's like, oh well, of course she's from somewhere else. Like, you know, it's such a strange thing. (laughs)
2: Yes, exactly. And, you know, and nobody was ever saying those things like they were trying to insult me. There wasn't any of that. You know, it was more of, you know, that's the kinds of questions I started to ask later when I went back to school. Like, I really I was like, how do you not I'm talking to you for five minutes. How do you not think that I'm from the United States? You know, Um, and I really think there's something else embedded in there in terms of who we see. What, you know, it, I don't think it's all that different from the policeman back when I was nine, who asked, was, he asked me, you know, where I was going and said, oh, do you work there? I think there's something very similar at play in the consciousness mm-hmm. around the, the space, you know, the place for someone who looks like me with dark and brown skin in the outdoors, doing the same thing really as all the other people, but they're backpacking or walking home or I'm doing all the same stuff. I'm not, you know, cartwheeling, you know, down the mountain or anything. I'm just, I'm looking pretty much the same, except I'm not looking pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the hidden mean, meanings that I think are in some people's mind about me being there. Maybe I'm not supposed to be there. Maybe I'm doing something. I'm gonna, am I a threat to anybody else? I challenge, right? I challenge that. I think I challenge the idea of who does these things. Who goes trekking in Nepal? Who lives in a beautiful neighborhood with trees and woods? Um, you know, I, a, a couple of days ago on the news, um, you know, there's so many stories right now. <clears throat> there was a story in Florida, and I believe the neighborhood was called Wellington, and it was about a 15-year-old black girl. Her first name was Brianna. And she was walking with two white friends in this wealthy neighborhood because she lived there with her grandfather. And there's a video of a white man, I would say he looked like maybe he's forties, yelling at her, telling her that she doesn't belong there. What is she doing there? and I gotta tell you all, I flashed back I mean it's been some time since I've been nine years old, but there was you know i'm gonna there was this moment you know that I felt it in my gut, and you know I think about how that Black girl, how will she carry that with her? Because, you know, we carry those things with us. We remember, you know, we buried it or we put it aside or it feeds our own sense of self or we're angry. You know, people, I, I work and talk with a lot, of, um, a lot of people, but a lot of white people in particular around issues, these issues broadly defined, having to do with the environment and race and You know, one of the questions that comes up, you know, is the question of, well, are Black people, some of us are scared that, you know, Black people are going to be so angry and they're going to do to us what we've been doing to them or been doing to you. And, you know, I thought about, there's a video out there, and I believe there's a Black, her Black woman's name is Kimberly Jones, where at the end of the video, she says, you know, she's angry and she's raging at the camera. And then she says, you know, you better be, you know, you better be glad that what Black people want is is equality and not revenge. And mm-hmm. I talked about that. I said, you know, yeah, you know what? I can't speak for all Black people, but I can take a really good guess that a lot of us are really angry. But anger, rage is more about hurt and loss. It has nothing to do with hate. And it's really interesting. It's like those things get conflated. And I said, you know what? we're angry. Of course, we're angry. It's been 400 years of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm suddenly reliving all of the moments that I have been dissed in my life, things that I don't like to think about all the time. I mean, I do this as work and that's my choice. And I, so I use a lot of it as story, but I try not to spend a lot of time thinking about it because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to remember the time in New York when I worked at a company for a year. It was, um, I used to do showroom modeling, you know, when I, one of my many survival jobs was um, um, when I was young and fresh was uh, I'd be on seventh Avenue working in the fashion district and sort of modeling and showing off coats, like for department stores. Mm -hmm. And I'd been there for a year with these folks and I had been straightening my hair and I stopped straightening my hair. You know, look, I never go anywhere without, I've got makeup on my hair. I got my stuff together. Right. But I stopped straightening it. I started wearing it in the kind of more natural form. And they told me that if I went, you know, they were gonna hire somebody else and fire me. And they said, but if you go back to straighten your hair, you know, you can stay. Now, you know, I didn't understand that. That's actually against the law, but I didn't know that. You know, I have so many stories like that that are you can think of them as slights. But you know, all you can do, it's like taking a little paring knife and you just do a little bit, little slight all the time, and you just carve away, carve away carve away, carve away. And the work that has to be done to really continue to show up as um, an optimistic, hopeful, happy, joyful, kind human being. I tell people, I am really not interested in doing to you what you may have done to me. I want to be better than that. Actually, i like for us all to be better than that. And But it takes a lot of energy. And sometimes all I can do is rage because I need a moment. You know why? Because I'm a absolutely. human being,
0: right? Yeah. No, and it's absolutely. not about
2: hate at all. It's actually about love. It's actually about something bigger than that. But I, it really hurts me to hear how some white folks are conflating the two. And I, I, I empathize with the fear. But I'm here to tell you that's not, what it's, that's not what's going on.
0: Well, and it, to me, the the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, a lifetime of these slights building up, those are going to condition certain responses in yes. people, right? So, yes. you know, if if you're you, somebody who enjoys going to parks, going to the national parks or really anything like that, and you repeatedly go there and you you don't see other people that look like you or you're, you know, being slightly, you know, hassled or even just like asked questions as to why you should be there, I mean that's going to make you less likely to go back into those situations. And it just perpetuates this, this ridiculous situation that we're in. And so, yeah, I, um, you know, just hearing that story um, is is super powerful. And I, and I feel like, you know, for me, one of the broader questions, um, and we'll, I think we'll get into a little bit more about like intersectional environmentalism specifically, but, I wonder, you know, since you you have had the opportunity, um, you know, you've you've um, had the, the honor to be in the National Parks Advisory Board. I'm wondering, yeah. you know, my main question is, why is enjoying the great outdoors something that's not available to everyone in America? Um, is, is it because, I mean, one of the reasons might be because people don't, um, people of color don't feel, uh, you know, comfortable there like we were just talking about, but, you know, was the National Park Service built on a foundation of exclusionary practices and, and what are they doing to actively, um, you know, erase that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I, you know, I was I loved serving on the National Parks Advisory Board. I was surprised when they asked me, um, you know, because pretty much everyone else in there or people that had been doing what they do in significant ways in politics and, and, and media and other areas of um, life for a long time. And I was pretty new at the game. Right. But I was there because of the diversity issue, because of my interest in it, as well as, you know, I tell people I talk about a thing and I am the thing itself. And both those things are always true. Um, And I, you know, so there's a couple of different answers to that. I will say to you that everything in this country was built on, (laughs) on everything you said, everything. There's nothing. Yes. This country, (laughs) right. I mean, I'm saying this to the listeners, this country, one, we, the land was stolen from the original people. And in many instances, those people were killed. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't, they were forced to live on other pieces of land, which, is not, which was not their home. And two, we enslaved another group of people to work the land for free in order to build the backbone of our economy. Now, there are a lot of complexities and we can have that conversation, but we can never get away from those two truths. So anything that was built, no matter how good the intention, was built on those two facts, right? So it's going to permeate even with the best of people. You know, when President Roosevelt came up with the idea of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and I think actually... What a great idea at a time coming out of the Depression when a a lot of men could not get work, right? A lot of men of all walks of life could not get work, that we could give them work by having them care for our trails and our parks, right, and our public lands. Great idea. They get work. Our public lands are cared for. The thing that Roosevelt didn't really want to address was this was taking place during Jim Crow segregation. So if you were non-white... And in particular, if you were Black, you couldn't show up in the same way. It wasn't a separate event. So you look at the Civilian Conservation Corps, say, in California, and look how segregated it was. The Civilian Conservation Corps was built on a military model. It meant that Black men in the Corps could not, you know, they weren't getting those positions of being at the top of that ladder in the Corps, right? They were often working in the kitchen or out on the trails, but they couldn't get that. They were living next to towns that wanted nothing to do with them. So when it was their day off or they needed to get supplies, there'd be signs and windows that said, whites only, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here. And I I can't imagine all the other kind of slights and um, um, instances of insecurity that they probably experienced. And you had a president who wasn't directly addressing it. Because I just think, and I can't say what was going on in his head, but what a privilege to not have to directly address it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Park Service, you know, I always, uh, sometimes I show an image and, the, and I, it's a picture of Roosevelt and John Muir in 1903 overhanging Rocky in Yosemite. And they're having, it's a famous picture, and they're having a conversation. And, you know, both those men were thinking about things like national parks and wilderness and conservation and preservation they're having what i imagine is an incredibly powerful conversation in 1903 number one again segregation number two there were many native people living on these lands and still relying on these lands how how, we're going to turn it into park what happens to them right (laughs) what happens to those people those communities um three john muir in his own words Read his words. This was an incredibly thoughtful and passionate man about non-human nature. He was also a racist. I'm not being dramatic. All you have to do is read in his words what he said about Black people and Native people. That's that's how complicated we are as a people. You can That, that doesn't diminish for me his commitment to nature, but it actually reveals what has always been true about this country. Those two things can exist simultaneously and they do all the time. So the Park Service is formed. You have a lot of good people, committed people, thoughtful people. It's formed in, as part of, they use the framework of a military model, right? So we, that's a separate conversation. What what does that mean in terms of how we are limited or bounded because it's a military model? Um, During a time of segregation, (laughs) during a time when Native people are trying to fight for their rights, during a time when Japanese are being interned, during Mm. a time when the Chinese are written out of history, even though 3,000 Chinese participated in building our railroad, you know, and it goes on, right? I I mean, I I get worked up and I'm sitting down, but I'm telling you, you I'm trying to (laughs) say that we have them as separate conversations, and I think the environmental movement broadly defined, conservation. Conservation was in bed with the eugenics movement. It doesn't want to talk about that, and I understand that, but that's how we better start to understand You know, the parks are not immune, which isn't to say you don't have a lot of excellent people, and you do, who work in the service who are trying to challenge that. Because it's not just about getting visitors to the park. Yes, they are public lands, that are still contested in many cases. I always have to, you know, with a significant nod to Native people, right? So, you know, I just read an article about uh, some Native folks who want to get rid of Mount, Mount Rushmore. We're taking down Confederate statues. Let's get rid of Mount, Rush, Mount Rushmore because there's a problem. And that's a national park. It's a national site, right? So that's a, woo, that's a hard conversation to have. And, but they've been saying that for the last four or 500 years. It's not a new conversation. It's just one that's getting heard and getting space um, at this moment. This is how complicated it is, which isn't to say that there probably aren't some great people working at that national park, and maybe they even agree. <laughs> but what you know, how do we how do we even learn how to make space for the conversation and what that means? You know, part of this for me is an acknowledgement and an accountability. For what has come before that has gotten us here now, before we think about where the heck it is we wanna go, right? We wanna hurry up and get away from all that as fast as we can, except the consequences of that history are playing out all the time. So if you jump to Christian Cooper bird watching in the park in New York City and Amy Cooper, right, who is probably a decent person, this is the thing I wanna say to people it is not about demonizing her. I don't know her, but I bet you. She's a decent person generally, right? And what was it that was happening in her consciousness that instead of saying, you know, maybe she could have said, I- I'm going to call the police because a person's threatening me. I'm going to call the police because a man is threatening me. What she said was, I'm going to call them and tell them an African-American man is threatening me. She may not have been consciously understanding what that is, but she weaponized that immediately. And that is not new. That, that, when I read it, I went, yep. There it is again, it's there all the time, right? And there's many of us on the other side of that conversation that understand that. So the parks are not immune to that either.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like one of the interesting things, you know, with the, you know, birding situation was I remember seeing all these articles coming out that were like, you know, we now um, have a great example of the black birders movement and how a lot of people weren't even aware that such a thing existed. So again, it's just one of these like, lack of awareness um, you know, people making assumptions left and right. And, you know, you shared earlier a little bit about John Muir, like, I, of course, knew him as the sort of the father of environmentalism in the United States. I did not know that he was also a racist. Yes. <laughs> so well, I mean, you know, it's just right. it becomes this, yes. this ins, you know, insidious um you know, world where we just don't, we don't even know or think about it. And so I think that's one of the things that's just so important. And actually, um, we're going to take a quick break um, and we'll be right back after this. Thanks so much for listening. We'll get back to today's episode in just a second, but we wanted to take a break to
1: recognize a few companies that we've partnered with. Right now, there are thousands of ethical brands out there which can be confusing and overwhelming. This is why Brightly exists. We are your guide to doing good in the world through conscious consumerism.
0: We personally vet and try products from every single brand that we partner with, both on our podcast and on our platform, Brightly.eco, so that you
1: don't have to do the research yourself. Partnerships like this are what helps Brightly and our community grow and increase our impact. Thank you. Laura, you've probably heard me talk all the time about my love for sheets and giggles. I've been sleeping on their new sustainable eucalyptus sheets for the past three months straight. I recommend them a thousand percent. Every week, I wash them and put them back on the bed right away. They're my go-to sheets. All of my other sheets, even the ethical ones, are taking a long break.
0: After hearing you rave about them for so long, I finally got to try their new eucalyptus comforter. I'm a weirdo, I really like having a comforter in my bed all the time, even in the middle of the summer, and I haven't been waking up hot when I've been using this one from Sheets and Giggles. It's a great ethical and sustainable alternative to the down one we used to use that's now sitting on our guest bed. Another thing I love about Sheets and Giggles is that they don't use plastic packaging and their materials don't use pesticides, so they're kind to our animal and insect friends.
1: They also plant a tree for each sheet set that is sold, and they are passionate about giving back. They give 10% off to their customers who donate their old sheets to homeless shelters and have donated over $40,000 to Colorado COVID relief. That's awesome.
0: Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at sheetsgiggles.com.
1: So I just went over to Laura's house recently and was shocked at how clean it is, especially since you guys just adopted a new puppy. (laughs) Very funny. We are definitely not
0: neat freaks at my house, but it's been pretty messy lately with all those pups. When I find cleaning products that are natural, safe, and incredibly effective, I have to shout it from the rooftops. I gave my place a once-over with Puracy products right before you got there, and it did look pretty sparkly if I say so myself.
1: Seriously, when we started learning about Puracy, we were also excited to learn that they're 100% made in the US and their team is obsessed about plant-powered performance. They also offer more than just cleaning products. My personal favorite I've tried from them is their organic hand and body lotion. It's very moisturizing, but not greasy. It's also great to use right after their hand sanitizer, which is also super effective.
0: Puracy has over a million customers and thousands of five-star reviews, so don't just take our word for it. Although, we hope you do. (laughs) (laughs) Head to puracy.com slash brightly for 10% off your order. Okay, so now we're back. (laughs) So, uh, Lisa, I wondered um, if we wanted to kind of get into, I know, intersectional environmentalism around that movement, because I know it's something that you're extremely passionate about, as am I.
1: Yeah, so you were talking about how kind of this conversation are completely separate, right? This uh, reality of racism, and ingrained racism, and there is also this environmentalist movement that is supposed to be doing good in the world. So intersectional environmentalism, uh, it's a term that recently became widely known and shared thanks to Leah Thomas' uh, work in her uh, blog article. And I was just wondering if that's, uh, if that's kind of maybe potentially uh, a little bit, of course, uh, very much too late, but a solution to this uh, situation that you were describing before. So Leah describes intersectional environmentalism as as an inclusive version of environmentalism that advocates for both the protection of people and the planet. It identifies the ways in which injustices happening to marginalized communities and the earth are interconnected. It brings injustices down to the most vulnerable communities and the earth, to the forefront and does not minimize or silence social equality. So I was curious, Carolyn, your kind of thoughts on intersectional environmentalism and how you understand it. And is that a potential solution uh, to this kind of having this two completely separate uh, conversation and ignoring the the racism issue?
2: Well, I want to say, I mean, I'm going to be really honest here. When Mm -hmm. you all wrote me, I had never heard of the term intersectional environmentalism. And- you're explaining it. And I know people we've been, have been doing that work, but not calling it that. So I love the mm-hmm. idea of it. You know, I love that, you know, it's good to give things a name and a place for people to latch onto what I want to say that for me, because so what one of the words I heard is the, you know, the interconnectedness mm-hmm. for a lot of people that I work with. And those of us have been thinking about this. I know what I've been promoting is relationship, which is what I'm hearing in there so that, mm-hmm. you know, Myself and others have always been saying, you know, it is not just about the... So I always ask a question when we talk about sustainability, what is it that we're trying to sustain? Mm -hmm. And the focus is often on the river, that piece of land, the mountain, you know, the woods. We're going to focus on that to sustain it. Let's just work together and do that. And I'm saying, well, really, what is the relationship we have with each other? What are we... How are we going to do that work of protecting the river? And somehow thinking that if we focus on the river, we don't have to deal with the, the tensions that exist between us mm-hmm. across our own differences. So that is also what I'm hearing in the intersectional, that actually we have to attend to both. The intention has to be about relationship across the board. There's no end game here, right? Mm-hmm. It is just really how do we engage and embrace our differences, which means we can't get past And the accountability and the acknowledgement of what has come before, because it tells us who we are today. And who gets to decide what we're aspiring to? How are we going to make decisions about what our vision, our collective vision, is for community, unless Mm -hmm. we we can get together in good relationship and in good faith and have those conversations? Not about a um, you know one of the things I always say is I I don't like to use the term outreach anymore, right? And I and I say this a lot to. organizations in particular i said look i've been outreached to and i know that often it comes from a good place but outreach usually means that you've got an individual and or an organization institution that has significant resources Mm -hmm. you know um that could be connections access money right they have significant privilege they reach out to someone who's different you know who's diverse however you want to define that They bring that person to the table. So maybe they get invited to be on the board or they get invited to have a job or they get a scholarship to be part of the department, right? That's the only one they bring that, that has that kind of diversity. So they bring them in, they set them down at the table, they make room for them, and then that person that they invited in has to learn everything about the table, everybody around the table, the mission statement, and the culture of the table, but nobody at the table has to learn anything about them. Mm-hmm. So nothing changes. They added a seat to the table, but this wasn't about a relationship of reciprocity. Yes. Right? Exactly. And. What I always say is if you want to engage difference, then you have to be willing to potentially throw out the table and have faith in that something new that can emerge, right? So I'm... um I lost my way there for a second.
1: Yeah. No, you were talking about the relationships. And I think what you were talking about, the reciprocity, I I was before in the nonprofit sector and, uh, you know, working with artisans in developing countries. And that's kind of one of the, you know, main issues and things that I'm very passionate about. You know, whenever we are trying to help a community, I always like to say, you know, we're trying to empower communities to help themselves, first of all. And then we, we never kind of get to decide, as you were saying, what? is good for the community we can only decide together and even more so learn from them what they need because they know better so again having the equal parts equal conversation and um yeah kind of maybe how you were saying throwing the table away in, a, in a way. yes
2: and this is i mean part of so i mean two things i want to say one i want to make sure that um and tell me again the author who coined the term intersectional environmentalism leah thomas uh, I want to really um, give support and um, how important it is to have a lot of different voices Absolutely. thinking about ways to frame and understand for us to move forward. So I really, I, I don't want anybody to misunderstand that I'm challenging the term. I actually think it's great. Mm-hmm. I just hadn't, I just hadn't heard it phrased that way before. Right. So, and it's, it's think, just,
1: of course, it's been pretty recent too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah and you've been so doing all this know work what for years. Saying
2: and doing I'm all about it and I'm mm-hmm. all for it um oh tell me again um Lisa what did you say there at the end there you were asking
1: me so you kind of covered that a little bit already so what does like uh if we call it so uh intersectional environmentalism quote-unquote like how would you describe it like what it means to you uh how do you understand that ah
2: yeah so thank you I remember mm-hmm. why I was going there uh so I wanna, you know, one of the um experiences that I think many of us in this country are having at the moment, and I think where there's a lot of fear for some people, is that we are challenging all the tables that are in place, right? And so mm-hmm.
0: we're saying you gotta throw them out. I love right? this, you know, by the way, the table metaphor. Yeah. It's really good. It's good, it's a good visualization.
2: <laughs> right, right. Just look at the table and we're saying the table has got to go. But we're not saying that. You know, for me it's not about forgetting where we've come from. It's not saying that the table doesn't have didn't have things that we can use, but there's a lot of things that are problematic about the way it has been constructed. And so, it is not about throwing it all away, but throwing some of it away so we can make space for something new and different, right? So we we can allow new voices, new ideas, new experiences. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And part of the the problem problem, I'm going to say challenge, the problem Often is if you have an homogenous group of people, you know, and and in this case, red whiteness, you know, and I always say to people, whiteness isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Nobody can help the skin they were born in. You know, I like to reference James Baldwin, who said whiteness is about power. So if you understand how that's embedded in all of our practices and behaviors and legislation in this country, this is where it gets complicated. Right. So I think that what does it mean to throw to throw out the table and give a chance, right, for those relationships to form differently. You know, we have to get to know who each other is and wh- what is going on. And what are we willing to risk in order to do that?
0: Mm-hmm. What- and I think that's it, right? It's fear-based, right, for most people, I feel like, Carolyn. and I, One of the things you said in your book, um, we, as we talk about including a variety of voices, I want to quote you, you say, it's not that you need to be perfect, but you need to know exactly where you're at in your own growth in order to meet someone else with honesty and clarity and in order to do no harm. So it's, you know, it's, it's not just being willing to, you know, listen to somebody who you wouldn't normally listen to. It's like, you have to take a step back and think about how your own response is going to, you know, halt a conversation or really influence it. Right. Yes,
2: because, you know, if there's also the, the a question of power in, within relationships. And, you know, it's a funny thing because sometimes we think power means who has more money or who has a higher position in whatever job or organization, um, who is more famous. And those are those are forms of power. But I think mm-hmm. every day there are subtle forms of power within relationships across difference. And one of those was illustrated with Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper. Now, Christian Cooper has a Harvard degree. He serves on Audubon. This man clearly knows who he is and how he is, but in that moment, and and none of us, you know, Amy Cooper, I haven't heard anything about her resume. And we could, and if we look at that in a traditional gender dynamic, right? You could make some assumptions there, but what we all really started to understand that who really had the power Right, who really had the power in that moment or at least thought she did and the way that she used race, that she weaponized it. And in this conversation of difference, you know, sometimes and I know I, that I work with a lot of white folks who I know just actually have no idea because it's been so normalized as that's the thing and the behavior that everybody should do. The rest of us have had to assimilate that they, the, they don't really see that, oh my God, I didn't, I really had no idea that I'm in this relationship with you. And really we're adjusting to my way of seeing the world because that's the way it's always been done. That's a position of power. So it's why I say to individuals and organizations, you know, do an internal assessment. You can get help with that. You can get help. You know, you can pay people to help you. And I'm really specific about that because this is also where the equity is, right? A lot of us Brown and Black folks, are getting a lot of requests to explain, to help and do all that work. And even for those of us that it's, it is our work to do, it is emotionally exhausting, it's taxing. Um, yes. And there needs to be reciprocity in that exchange. So that's my sort of little aside, but I think that's really important, right? Um, um, what does it mean for a, an individual, an organization to sort of assess about where they're really standing? I always say to, particularly to students, that, you know, one of the assignments I like to give is to write their own environmental autobiography. It can be short. You can't get this assignment wrong, I always tell them, because just like I told that story at the beginning of this um, conversation with um, you and Lisa, I told the story of where I was born and kind of where I started to understand my point of view about non-human nature and the outdoors, you know, where it got shaped. Um, It also allows me to be situated because I'm biased everybody is biased, you know, and bias is not the same as prejudice and racism, right? But we're all biased. I have a point of view and I bring that point of view to everything it is that I'm trying to understand. And therefore, if I'm in a situation where I'm trying to build a relationship with someone different from myself, at least if I understand that, I can understand that, oh, okay, you know the way that that might play out, the impact that that might have, that I can be intentional about not wanting to have that kind of impact. And if something happens, I can figure out, I know what that is, right? I don't make any assumption about, well, that's just normal. This is just what it is. What's wrong with this person? I can actually think about what does this mean, you know, um, for me in this relationship? What do I maybe need to go back and rethink? What do I need to go back and address? You know, what is my job to take care of? And not the job of the other person. And in the conversation about race, this is really specific. You know, we often frame any um, experience or challenge around race as something that the person who is raced has to take care of. It's their problem. It's a black problem. You know, it's a brown problem. (laughs) You know, um, it's a black issue. Oh, you're playing the race card. I mean, we could go on and spend an hour just talking about that, how it gets deflected onto the person who is Mm raised, as opposed to understanding it's about something deeper and that the person who's saying it's a black problem has what a privilege to be able to deflect that
1: exactly so we talk a lot uh at this podcast and uh uh, at brightly on in general so what can we do what are small steps that uh we as humans as citizens can take every day to create change what can brightly community members can do to ensure that environmentalism and sustainability are inclusive for all truly
2: yes and i think you know for the first and i'm i'm thrilled that many in the community are thinking about this and are and are probably doing this work already right mm-hmm. so i don't want to make the assumption that um your listeners aren't doing that i think one and this is again this is my point of view here um <clears throat> is that there is there is the intention and the understanding that there's no end game here there's not a goal this isn't a, mm-hmm. if you do it, you know point 1 point 2 point 3 you're going to get there it is always ongoing cuz change is always present if nature teaches us anything is that there's always change so improving the way we're able to stand in relationship with somebody different than ourselves we're improving the way we're able to stand in the world because you know when there's change in the world how do we engage that right how do we how are we able to take those risks and how are we able to own our own privilege and this you know the thing that i have empathy for it, because I can't understand the experience that if I was born white, I actually don't know what that is. <laughs> like I don't know what, you know, what that would mean to be in a world where you, you're a good person and you worked really hard and you try to make the best choices But you've always been able to do it, operating in in an experience that's been normalized. That everybody else, if you're outside of that experience, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you're always looking in at it and understanding that everything has it embedded in there. But if you're in it, I, you know, to look out from that place that you think is this is the normal, this is the center. You know, um, I can't imagine what that feels like because now you have. We've been pushing for a long time, but you're getting it from all corners. So everything from you know Aunt Jemima's coming off the pancake box to Confederate flags are coming down to Gone with the Wind you know like all these things that have been talked about and challenged for years it's all happening at once and so a lot of us are coming and saying sorry that's got to (laughs) go you know sorry that's got to go so part of it is I think finding ways to self educate because there's a lot out there to read see watch I think part of it is. You know, yes, you can also bring people in. You can, you know, whatever that looks like to help you do that work. You can hire people. You can build a relationship. Part of it is um, coming to terms with what you're willing to stand up for at any given time. And this is all individual work for me, too. You know, what are you willing to risk? What can you risk? Are you willing to say something? Because silence, I think, is deadly. And a lot of people have said that it's deadly. You know, you see something, you hear something among, you know, people that you know, people you work with, and you don't say anything, even though you cringe on the inside, you know, what does it mean for you to actually take action? Because it's all the little increments that can actually, that are part of the big change. I think we have to have both. I think we have to have incremental change and we have to have big change, y'all. It's all got to come down, meaning that sort of, that that racism that's been so embedded for so long. Um But everybody has to choose where they stand there and actively make that choice. I think that there, everybody may not agree with me on this one, but I think there also has to be a place for forgiveness. And I mean, forgiveness for others, but forgiveness for yourself. Mm -hmm. And forgiveness doesn't let you off the hook. It just means that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And there's a lot of things that happened earlier on where none of us were alive, but we've all... Benefited, or um, we're, we're carrying the burden of that past in many different ways. What does it mean for us to take off those rose-colored glasses and get real? Because there's also a lot of beautiful things. The potential of what we can do, it also is reflected in our history here in this country. As human beings, we've done some amazing things. <laughs> like I just, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself like, we're kind of incredible. Sometimes it's amazing what we can do. Um, But we've also done some horrific things. We stole the land from the original people. We killed them. We enslaved another. We have done some horrific things that we are still paying for. So really, you know, to think about what that forgiveness looks like in tangible terms, what does it mean to then show up, you know, and in spite of the fear, to show up anyway. And when you see that rage in front of you, just keep showing up, not to damage yourself. I'm not interested in anybody being damaged or diminished, but understand that you have whole communities and swaths of people in this country who've been damaged their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's incrementally with that little, you know, little paring knife. And sometimes you lose your life, like George Floyd, you know, and everything in between, you know, the slights you know, all the time. What does it mean to stand up and witness that? What does it mean to acknowledge where you've fallen short? What does it mean to say that you are going to do things differently and you're going to self-educate on how to do that? What does it mean to own your own stuff? And what does it mean to also forgive yourself? You know, get it's so powerful. Yeah.
0: We we talked Constantly, Carolyn, on this podcast, about, you know, as we coach our community to make incremental shifts every day, you know, specifically with sustainability in mind. But we talk a lot about habit shifting um, and, you know, wanting to kind of give yourself encouragement for choosing to make that change. And yeah. so, You know, I I love that you bring up the concept of forgiveness, at least, you know, it it helps people maybe get started, fully recognize that, you know, it doesn't mean that they're off the hook. (laughs) Um, But we always say, you know, the fact that people are being curious and are willing to dig into the values uh, based issues that they're really passionate about is something that, you know, we're super inspired by our community members every day who are doing this. Um, and so, you know, like I said, for for us at Good Together um, and at Brightly, we are extremely passionate about, um, you know, putting forth the voices that we want, um, you know, people to hear from as it relates to the systemic change in the world. So um, we just want to thank you so much for appearing on the podcast with us. Um, you know, like I said, Carolyn's book um, is called uh, Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African-Americans to the Great Outdoors. Highly recommend getting it. Uh, bonus points if you get it from an independent bookshop. <laughs> uh, so bonus points there, community. Um, but Carolyn, thank you so much for for joining us. It's been an absolute honor and privilege. Well, thank, thank you, you Laura
2: and Lisa, both for making space for the conversation, for inviting me in. You know, nobody, none of us are off the hook, right? So it's Absolutely. really important that we, you know, are able to have these conversations and think about how we might move
1: forward for- to together. together. Mm-hmm. Quickly. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening
0: on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on
1: brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance
0: for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.